politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman yearning to live free again, yearning for sanity. This is your one-stop shop for that sanity. Daniel Horowitz, your host here at CR Podcast. It is Thursday, uh, January 13th, and we really have a special show for you today. And, and it's born out of filling this gap of empathy. There's a plethora of petulance and a deficit of decency, okay? There's a lack of empathy. What is so shocking is that here we are, almost two years into this saga, where it has become abundantly clear that it is nobody's fault for getting this virus other than the people who created it and unleashed it upon us. And yet, nobody wants to treat the virus. Nobody wants to treat vaccine injuries. Nobody wants to recognize them. So what we have now is, you know, there's still people that are getting COVID that are in need of treatment. And then you have long COVID. Remember, this is a bioweapon. It's not like normal post-viral syndrome. As much as the media exaggerates and lies about things, there are elements that are true. So I get these heartbreaking emails from people that they have both long COVID and vaccine injury sometimes, both or one or the other. So we've spent a lot of time talking about treatment for the onset of COVID. What about the treatment of long-term symptoms? What is long COVID? And how does that relate to vaccine injury? You know, because the spike protein is, is the same. So we're going to have a very special guest on today to answer your questions and give some of you guys a place to go to get treatment, to actually practically get treatment, and there's always a deep dive into understanding what's behind it. But it's born out of a lack of empathy. I'm not seeing that empathy anywhere. You know, last night I was dealing with yet another case where someone's being denied a, a transplant because their vaccination status. How did we allow this to go on in the country? No, no transplant if you don't get the shots that, that, by the way, studies have shown that the shots not only are dangerous to those people, they really fail to stimulate immunity for people like that. So it's, it's, it's a total lie. It's a total lie that somehow... Uh, those people need them more when they don't work. We talked about yesterday the negative efficacy across the board now. This is happening everywhere. It's not just a rumor. In fact, I would venture to say more places that offer kidney transplants are have that rule than don't. Where's the legislation? Where's the clamor to deal with that? We need a patient's bill of rights in hospitals everywhere. I'm hearing more and more that they're searching through people's belongings, taking away vitamins, that they're literally holding people hostage, not allowing transfers. How did we allow this inhumane treatment in a system that has so many HR rules and so many you know, regulations on how to treat people when it, when, when it doesn't matter, suddenly it's absent when we need it the most? 
Again, a lack of empathy. And again, doctors are being punished for even treating long COVID. They're being attacked. You're not allowed to treat it. You're not allowed to treat long COVID. And certainly you're not allowed to treat vaccine injuries. It's very rare to to get people out of the psychosis. It's actually funny. I saw this one publication in Denmark did a mea culpa. It was in Danish, but the, the words were, we failed. Extra Bladget is the newspaper in Copenhagen. And they, they talk about an interesting thing about, you know, this failure. And I'm just reading a rough translation from Google Translate. The vaccines are consistently referred to as our super weapon. And our hospitals are called super hospitals. I guess that's the term they use in, in Danish. Nevertheless, these super hospitals are apparently maxima, maximally pressured even though almost the entire population is armed with a super weapon. Even children have been vaccinated on a huge scale, which has not been done in our neighboring countries. In other words, there is something here that does not deserve the term super. Whether it's the vaccines, the hospitals, or a mixture of it all is every man's guess, but at least the authorities' communication to the population no way deserves the term super. On the contrary. So that was a very interesting point. At some point, when are these people held accountable for their lies. One of the shocking stories I saw yesterday, a whole bunch of things I wanted to share with you, but we're not going to have time to get to today. The West Virginia governor. Okay, this is from thehill.com. Jim Justice, extremely unwell after positive COVID test. I don't know the latest, but this was as of yesterday. Um, according to press release, Justice, who is fully vaccinated and boosted, this is, by the way, is the guy that's requesting Biden to give a supply of fourth shots to West Virginia. He got tested after experiencing a sudden onset of symptoms. Um, while I was surprised that my test came back positive, I'm thankful to the Lord above that. I've been vaccinated, I've been boosted, and that I have an incredible support system, especially my loving family. That being said, I feel extremely unwell at this point, and I have no choice but to postpone my state-of-the-state address. And he basically credits, he says blatantly, that that it's be uh, that he's going to recover because he chose to receive the vaccine and the booster shot. You say you're extremely unwell. So most of the other guys are getting Omicron, which inherently is mild, and then they credit the shot. That's the new game. But he actually says he's extremely unwell. Now, I don't know if that means, usually in the context of COVID, that means you're getting some, some pulmonary <coughs> and you're having trouble breathing to a certain extent. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it could mean it's just, just the flu-like symptoms are just extremely uncomfortable and he's very unwell to the extent that he can't give the state of the state address, but it's nothing dangerous. I don't know. I wish him well. I don't wish danger upon him. But it's like he's getting it. He claims to be getting it bad. So it used to be they get it mild and like, man, it, see, it's only mild because I had the shots. And now it's like he gets it bad, but I guess it still would have been worse. I mean, what in the world? This is unbelievable. Yet there's no compassion. He, it's not like he's going to change his policies. He still look you in the eye and say it works. It's unbelievable. And of course, by the way, you got the monoclonals. Every one of them is getting the monoclonals. What do you mean? I thought you can't get seriously ill. What do you need the monoclonals for? Then why aren't you spending your time promoting the monoclonals 
rather than promoting the shots that don't work to the point that anyway you need the monoclonals. It's it's a lack of empathy. It's disgusting. This is this is not right or left or anything. This is just purely disgusting. How are they able to get this going? By the way, um, someone did an analysis of 10, 10 U.S. states with indoor mask mandates now. All 10 have a rapid rise in cases. The number one highest case rate in the country right now is Rhode Island. Number two is New York. Again, a lack of empathy. How could you think this stuff works? This stuff is helpful. This stuff is humane. And how you could refuse to pursue other things. Now, as far as what is going on with the virus, it's very hard to tell. You know, because there are, there was a survey from New Jersey, at least the New Jersey state government claims in most counties, half the cases are Delta. Why is Omicron not fully taking over like it appears in other parts of the world? That's very concerning. Is this the vaccine selecting for the more virulent strain? So this, this is what makes it very confusing now. Because on the one hand, Delta is getting worse and worse from the ADE. On the other hand, Omicron is extremely mild. So I don't know. I just say don't let your guard down in terms of treatment because you just don't know at this point. Like I always say, to the extent I get things wrong in my predictions, it's because I trust the government too much, not the other way around. And you know they put out data saying 98% of all cases, is Omicron. That's simply not true. That is simply not true. It, it, it varies by, by geography, and we just don't know day to day. There's clearly a lot of problematic versions of Delta that are circulating. And to the, ex, to the extent, again, you definitely see decoupling in the data because there is a lot of Omicron, but the reason why you still see a number of deaths is because Delta is really circulating. And that's the broader point I wanted to mention as we head into our guest. Unlike some of my other hosts that, you know, as much as I'm focused on liberty and I had a fight for liberty, at the same time, we can't deny the fact that they created two bioweapons. One's a weapon on, against our liberty. One's against our health. This is an unprecedented time. They released a hell of a virus upon us. And then the vaccine made Delta much worse, as Vandenbosch warned, and we have a really tough situation on our hands. You know, this is not a normal virus. This is not something that nature creates. And that's why you do have this concept of long COVID. And, and it does need to be treated. Now, just one more thing. I just want to make sure we have time for this before we move on. There is a bill in um, Indiana, HB 1372, to prohibit uh, denial of ivermectin at pharmacies uh, to prevent doctors from being uh, you know, penalized by medical boards. HB 1372, Representative uh, Kurt Nicely, one of the few conservatives there. Indiana is a dumpster fire. So if you are in Indiana, light up the phones. Um, say, look, you know, you've made all their other stuff available. You've mandated it. Allow us with our own doctor to get treatment. Truly, truly disgusting. And again, remember, it's not a monotherapy. Ivermectin works, works magic with a lot of people. 
but then you you do have some people you can't count on it with Delta. Delta's a different animal. Um and it's why you really want to make sure again, have your D C levels up, zinc, quercetin, um uh, you know, forty milligrams of of Pepsid if you uh get it. If you feel you're gonna get a serious case, you can go up to eighty. Doctors have told me. Um, there's natokinase is an anticoagulant over-the-counter supplement. Obviously, the um, nasal irrigation, again, the betadine spray, uh, betadine wa- wash of your mouth to get down the viral load. And, and look, it, you know, that stuff works with all the winter pathogens as well. But um, do want to get to our guest. Our guest is sponsored by International Living. Thinking of buying property? Well, whether it's an investment or just because you need a change, Panama you're up to 10 times richer with this investment. Panama is a high-income nation, not, not just a, you know some third-world country. It also uses the U.S. dollar as currency, and yet every dollar in your bank account in Panama is worth up to 10 times more um, because of the tax structure, the cost of living. Right now, as a fan of my show, you could learn more about this opportunity by getting the complete Invest and Retire in Panama series, including the American's Guide to Living and Retiring in Panama, along with four videos for free. Check it out at buypanamanow.com slash conservative. Again, 100% free, buypanamanow.com slash conservative. Now, as I mentioned, this lack of, of empathy, of treatment, is really a three-legged animal. We talked a lot about one of those legs, and that's the early treatment with the onset of COVID, but there's really two other legs to this, and that's long-haul COVID. I mean, look, this has been going on for almost two years. We know that this virus has the ability to create these long-term symptoms that we haven't seen before. Why is there no desire to research it more? Um, and, and help people. And then, of course, is the third leg of the stool, which, which is vaccine injury. And, you know, I don't care what someone's view on the vaccines are. The reality is there were 400, whatever, no, 520 million doses uh, that have been administered in the United States. So even if it were relatively safe, there's a heck of a lot of people that are undeniably messed up from the spike protein and possibly other mechanisms. We're certainly seeing it with the blood clotting. We're seeing it with the myocarditis. We're seeing it with all sorts of you know pro-inflammatory malaise that people get. Um, why should they be left without treatment? And and who's even dealing with this? So we got a special guest today who is a part of a terrific organization. Um, the Chronic COVID Treatment Center that is actually offering both, uh, you know, clinical treatment and as well as uh, academic research to try to better that treatment and better understand um, both uh, COVID long haulers and uh, some of the injuries from the spike protein in the vaccine. Dr. Ramyo Gendra is a bird, uh, board-certified anesthesiologist with degrees in biology, tropical infectious diseases. He's currently in private practice in anesthesiology. Um, and along with Drs. Bruce, Bruce Patterson, Dr. Pervy Parikh, some others, he's a co-founder of the Chronic COVID Treatment Center. And if you want to check them out, it's covidlonghaulers.com. Um, they're doing research on, again, long-term COVID post-vaccination syndrome as well as chronic Lyme and chronic fatigue syndrome, something that I've gotten interested in recently as well. Uh, Dr. Yogendra, thanks so much for joining us today. Daniel, thanks a lot for having me. Really excited to to talk to you. 
Well, there there certainly is a lot going on here. Um, gosh, I don't know how to even unpack this. Could you start out by explaining to the audience what is long-haul COVID syndrome as distinct from typical post-viral syndrome? Yeah, it's, you know, I think this is still an ongoing, and, and maybe this is the, uh, the challenge in, in studying um, these post-COVID symptoms, um, is we're still trying to define, uh, and there's even the terminology, long COVID. Um, you know, some use long haulers, others use, uh, I know the NIH and the uh, FBA call it post-acute sequela of covid so here we are just even having a debate and a discussion about what the terminology is. Uh, so obviously you can understand how, how, what, a, what a challenging uh, time it is to sort of understand. But basically this is, the, the, the BMJ put out um, sort of some parameters about a year ago um, where they said that any, anyone having persistent symptoms uh, three months after infection, uh, would, they, would, they would call it uh, chronic COVID, and, and we've sort of taken that, um, that, that definition to heart right now, is that these are persistent symptoms right after COVID infection. So after about two to three weeks um, after you, you've been sick, if you still have symptoms afterwards, um, it really depends. You know, some patients will get better, will kind of get back to baseline, but then there are ones that probably, you know, two, three months afterwards, they're still having symptoms. And that's unfortunately continues on. And, and now that we're into year two of the pandemic, we're starting to see people with long COVID or these symptoms um, two years now. And it's unfortunate. It's absolutely debilitating, disabling, and, and crippling for, for millions of people, not here, just in the United States, but all over the world. So when you say debilitating, can you describe some of these symptoms? We're not just talking about, um, you know, congestion from a cold that sometimes lasts for forever with some people, there's very specific symptoms you're seeing. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's some new studies that have shown that there's over 200 different symptoms that are associated with long COVID. But if you were to sort of categorize them, we could sort of look in, in, in sort of different symptoms groups. So there's neurological, um, and those would be a lot of times patients complain of something called brain fog, which if you're not familiar with the term, it's sort of cognitive impairment. And I'll sort of give you an example. I, I have a friend of mine who, uh, when I first started, uh, when I first heard about long COVID, it's actually a, a, someone I went to training with. And he said, I can't turn on. Like he had COVID three weeks later, went back to work. He had a mild infection. He said, I can't remember how to turn on the ventilator. <laughs> and I laughed at him and said, well, what, what do you mean you can't try? I, I thought, you know, were, were you drunk? The, you know, were you, were you drinking the night before, doing something you're not supposed to? He goes, no, no, no. I can't not remember how to do my job. I can't turn on my ventilator. Basically what it is is they just have very basic tasks. They can't remember things they can't do. They, they just cognitively, there's an impairment um, that is unfortunately um, getting in the way of their daily life, and whether taking care of family or going to work or, or even taking care of their own needs. Another one is um, they have persistent headaches, these horrible migraines, of sensation, mode of function, uh, dysregulation or impairment. Um, so those would be some of the major neurological ones. And of course, there, there's several more. Like I said, that's over 200. 
Um, the next group would be cardiac. And if you look at cardiac, a lot of times patients will say they have something called POTS, where they have unexplained tachycardia, but their heart rate just randomly will go up from 70 to 160 or 170 without their blood pressure drops when they stand up and they start to get dizzy. Others get unexplained chest pains, tightness in their chest. So that obviously you can imagine how debilitating it is. You're trying to go take a shower. They can't even do that. They need assistance because when they go to stand up, they start to feel like they're going to pass out or their heart rate, their heart is, they'll say it's pounding and uh, all these palpitations. The other group of symptoms, we could, we could sort of categorize it into respiratory and these are, they have shortness of breath, even at rest. Um, they have very difficult time just getting up from their bedroom and just going to the kitchen to making a meal or going to the living room. So they're bed bound. They can't, they're not responding to any in, inhalers. They're seeing ton of specialists. Um, nothing is really improving their, their breathing. The other group is, if you want to call it uh, gastrointestinal, and now they're having digestion problems, uh, constipation, diarrhea. They can't, they have a lot of food intolerances. Um, and obviously now you can imagine they're not getting proper nu nutrition. So now you're having a metabolic problem. Uh, there's the di um, absorption issues that are taking place. Another class, if you want to call it, is um, the sort of joint rheumatological. They have muscle aches, myalgias, joint pain, fatigue. I mean, fatigue might be one of the top three symptoms. And when we think of fatigue, all of us get fatigued. We're, we're humans, we work, we, we, we exercise, but this is a debilitating fatigue. And I have personally seen these patients in their homes because they, some of them cannot even physically get out to go to the clinic. So I've actually done home visits where I've seen the patients and, and I've talked to them just to get a real understanding. And these are people that Young people, 25, 26-year-old, previously D1 athletes, NCAA D1 athletes, they're sitting there, they're shortness of breath. They take maybe every 10 or 15 words, they have to pause and they have to stop. That's how much the fatigue has debilitated them. They can't even have a conversation. So I would say those are sort of some of the major groups or major symptoms or organ systems that are being affected with long COVID. Wow, that is pretty comprehensive. That runs the gambit. So, you know, you guys have published um, a couple of uh, uh, peer-reviewed studies, gotten the frontiers of immunology. Um, you, f you seem to find, not surprisingly, that the spike protein, the S1, seems to be the culprit for a lot of this stuff. Uh, you think you kick it, but you found that it does have the potential to stay in the body for a long time. Could you describe some of your findings just academically? What's sort of this Rosetta Stone behind these symptoms that people see, um, you know, just clinically? Yeah, we, we've got two, two peer-reviewed published papers now into the, the pathology, uh, or what we believe is the pathology driving, um, driving these symptoms. The, the first paper was based on some research we did last summer where we, we took the blood work of many of these um, long COVID patients, close to 200 patients, and, and we looked at their immune markers and we found this chronic inflammation. And we, we put it to machine learning and AI 
and, and developed an algorithm that would allow us to classify, at least immunologically, who was a long COVID patient, almost a, a pattern or if you want to call it a fingerprint, and which was a really powerful tool because for many of these patients, they never had a positive COVID test. It's uh, not their fault. Our public health system didn't give offer adequate testing. Um, a lot of them didn't have access to, to the testing and whatever testing they did get, you know, there was, there was a lot of question about how valid it was. So many of them didn't have a, a positive test. So now they had some inflammatory markers. They were previously healthy. So nothing to, you know, we can explain it with some preexisting condition. And we found these inflammatory markers and that's all well and good, but anytime you're seeing anything in clinical medicine with with markers or things that are elevated, the question we need to ask ourselves is what is causing it? See, we can go treating these inflammatory markers with XYZ medications, but we want to treat not just symptoms, we want to treat the underlying cause. And the, the, the paper that was just peer-reviewed and published a few days ago in Frontiers was our, our what we think is a breakthrough finding where we, we discovered the S1 protein from SARS-CoV-2 in long COVID patients. And, and what does that mean? So when you look at the virus, it's called coronavirus because they're, if you look in, in a microscope, they've got these sort of crowns, um, like a corona is where the name comes from. And, and they're these, they, they, they call it the spike proteins or the, the S protein. And the S protein has two subunits, it has an S1 and an S2. And the S1 is what binds to the ACE2 receptor that you know, people that have been following the research and the discussions will know about ACE2 receptors found all over the body and the respiratory tract, all the major organs, blood vessels, and that's how the, the virus will sort of attach to the, um, the cell in the body. And interestingly, we found the S1 protein using flow cytometry, um, the S1 proteins in these long COVID patients. One of them was 15 months after infection. Mm. And um, very interesting, what we did was we then did even further analysis into that S1 protein where we did um, single um, molecule protein sequencing. And basically what that means is that we took that S1 protein we found and we sequenced it. We sequenced the proteins in that, um, in that patient. And what we did was we compared it to, if you want to call it store-bought S1, or what, what, what we know the S1 sequencing is. And what was really, really shocking and, you know, exciting from a scientific point of view was that it was exactly the S1 protein, the same peptide sequencing in the a patients um, that was like, identical to the quote-unquote store-bought S1 protein. So that was for us the, the confirmation that we were, in fact, um, dealing with the S1 protein. The S1 protein was found in an immune cell called a monocyte. And what the monocytes are, they are what are called, I, I always call them the garbage trucks of the body. And they're picking up debris, things in the body that are not supposed to be there, bacteria, viruses, dead cells, whatnot. And they, they patrol the body. And there's three different types of monocytes. There's classical, intermediate, and non-classical monocytes. And I know we're really getting into the weeds here, but it kind of will, you know, kind of, kind of talking a little bit about the, the research and obviously with some of the things we're finding with the vaccine, it really will tie back into those three different um, subsets or, or the subtypes of monocytes. Well, we found the S1 protein 
inside the intermediate monocytes and the non-classical monocytes. And interestingly, both of them have an affinity for vascular tissue. And what we believe is taking place is that what's happening is during active infection, the S1 protein is being stuck or trapped inside these immune cells called monocytes. The monocytes are actually doing what it's supposed to do. It's clearing out the virus and the viral debris. But for reasons we still haven't quite understood yet, and we have some hypothesis, the S1 protein in these patients is being retained inside these monocytes, and they're being activated. And now what they're doing is they're putting out all these inflammatory markers. It's almost like thinking about if you put garbage in a garbage truck, and you have the garbage truck sitting there for, let's say, six to eight months, what happens when you walk by the garbage truck? It's going to stink. And, and, and you're right? going to react to the stink. You're going to react to it. So you're saying this is like typically when you're sick, it's because your body's fighting what it you know, perceives as a virus going on there. So you're saying that if you have fragments of this perpetually in your system, your body is going to respond to it. Absolutely. Because it's, it's activated. It's, it's now throwing out this the stink or, and, and, and that's the inflammatory markers and, and we're measuring cytokines and cytokines are immunoregulatory proteins that they function, they, they help with the, with the normal functioning of the immune system um, and they play a role in, in cell signaling and in processing and in trafficking of all these immune cells. But what's happening is it's driving this almost this hyper inflammatory and unfortunately persistent uh, state. And now you have these patients 12, 16 months after that are just chronically inflamed, no apparent reason, all their testing is negative. So these patients are some of the most highly worked up patients, not also that, I would also say that they're one of the most intelligent groups of patients. They're so well researched. I mean, I don't blame them. They're sitting at home. A lot of them are in disability. Um, or can't work anymore, so they just sit and they do they do fantastic research. And quite frankly, I learned I learned so much about this from the patients rather than from others other researchers and doctors. But they're really guiding. You know, I really give a lot of credit to the patients out there. They're really guiding this this research and sure. helping a lot of us. But um, yeah, so so the going back to the S1 protein, we don't necessarily know why they're in. Um, those non-classical monocytes, could it be a genetic, an environmental, a combination, medications, we don't know. But they're in there. Um, and that was the latest finding um, in our new, new publication that just came out. So, so and, how does this, if you could just, as you're talking, start bringing in also the vaccine-mediated uh, you know, spike proteins that, that it induces the body to produce, are, how similar and different are the injuries you're seeing and the markers in the blood work from post-vaccination syndrome to post-viral, you know, post-COVID syndrome? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question, Daniel. Um, you know, symptoms-wise, they're almost alike. I would say they're more skewed towards neurological um, in our cohort of patients. I think when you look at the symptoms of, um, of post-vaccine, people with persistent post-vaccine issues, which, by the way, it is real. 
it is an absolutely real, these patients are suffering out there. So, you know, I think we have to acknowledge these patients. Um, I don't know, necessarily know the numbers. We haven't done any epidemiological numbers. I would say overall, this is a, a small, when you're looking at overall, the 500 million, you know, doses that have been administered, it is small, but I think the number is significant enough that as researchers, physicians, medical community, and the public, we need to acknowledge and help these people. These are moms, dads, kids, grandparents. This could be someone that you know. And I think we, we have an ethical and moral duty to study and to help these people. And that's our approach to, to um, the studying the vaccine. And when you're looking at the symptoms of the vaccine, um, like I said, it's more neurological. Um, so a lot of them will have this brain fog, headaches, peripheral neuropathy, tremors, um, eye floating. They have this weird sensation in their eyes. And that was kind of interesting when we were um, sort of putting together the paper um, on the, on the post-vax um, patients. Now, we hear a lot about the myocarditis and the, and the pericarditis um, vaccine uh, patients or, or post-vax issues. Our cohort of patients, we are capturing these patients three months, three to four months after their last inoculation, mm. where some of the myocarditis and pericarditis are more, so if you want to call it acute, or they're, they're going to be much closer to that inoculation period. So in our cohort, we have not seen any myocarditis and pericarditis patients, but that, that's just because we're sort of capturing them months after the resolution of the, of the cardiac issues they're having post-vaccination. And what was very interesting with these post-vax groups, our research was honestly just started out long COVID, but we started to hear patients with some of these post-vax issues and we started to test them. We found inflammatory markers. And then the question we asked ourselves was what's causing it? And the hypothesis um, in the spring of 2021 was maybe the S1 protein, could that be driving this? And is it the same mechanism as long COVID? Now, what we did was we did that. We applied the same methodology and approach. And we looked in those immune cells of these patients that never had COVID. And we determined they never had COVID. And even though it's not 100%, they had multiple negative PCRs. They also had negative nucleocapsid antibodies. And what does that mean? So if you have an infection with COVID, you're going to make different antibodies to different parts of the virus. And there's a thing in the virus called a nucleocapsid um, that's almost like this thing that is covering on the, on the virus or the viral genome. And your body makes antibodies to that. So if you have had exposure to COVID, you're going to have a positive, most likely have a positive nucleocapsid antibody. So that's a sign that your antibodies that you have are from, from a COVID infection. With that being said, there are actually patients that had an active COVID infection that never made antibodies, even to the nucleocapsid. So it's mm. not 100%. You know, you can't use that test to say, yeah, you never had COVID. And that is a limitation. And that is obviously going to be open to criticism when, when you know, after we submit the paper for peer review. But it is what we have. And we can only use the tools that we have. But nevertheless, these are patients that never had any COVID symptoms, multiple negative PCRs, and they had a negative nucleocapsid. 
What we did then was we took their blood, we put it through full cytometry, we found the S1 proteins. Well, where do they come from, right? <laughs> and when we did, we went one step further and we did same thing, um, peptide sequencing using mass spec. And very, very interesting. This is probably about eight weeks ago we got the results of this and we're gonna, we're gonna submit this paper next week. Is that we found that these patients had this, the S1 proteins, the peptide sequencing, but we also found in the post-vax patients mutant S1. And what does that mean? Is there were some sequences, peptide sequences in these post-vax S1 proteins that were different than the store-bought S1. Huh. We also found S2 proteins in the post-vax patients. Now, the question then is, what does that all mean? Wait, and, and the S2s is, you did not find in the long hauler study? We did not. Interesting. We did not. We, we found um, just the pure S1 in long COVID patients, but in post-vax, we found S1, mutant S1, and we found S2. And we saw this in, we tested Pfizer patients, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca. We actually had one patient who was in the AstraZeneca trial. And very interesting findings. Now, what does that mean? We don't know. Is it pathological? We don't know. And I think our research is not necessarily going to have a lot of answers, but maybe going to have us ask more questions. Like, sure. for example, what is the S2, S1 protein doing in these post-vax patients months after their last inoculation? The average age of the people that we studied, or the average time period in the people we studied, from the last inoculation till the time they got their blood work done and their S1 proteins measured was 101 days. So you're looking at about three months after the vac vaccine. On average, these patients still had the S1 proteins in their monocytes. The average age of the patients were 42 years old. They were heavily skewed towards women. So young women, 72% of our cohort of patients were women. Um, average age, like I said, was 42 years old, which is very interesting because in the Pfizer, um, when, when some documents were released from, from, I think a few weeks ago, from the vaccine trial, their numbers sort of correlated a little bit with ours, even though our cohort was much smaller. I think they had something like 47 or 48,000 patients that had sort of, if they documented some reaction to the, to the vaccine. And they, some of them were really minor, but they, they've had close to the same demographics and almost the same age group as our little cohort of patients. Wait, you're saying um, that more of the injuries reported to their verification system were among women? Yep, young, young women. I think their cohort was 49 years old and 72% were women, in, in, or 71% were women. Ours was 41 or 42 years old, 72% were women. I, I, you know, it was one of those things, like I'm cranking out the numbers and then someone sent that to me and I go, oh my God, this is, this is kind of interesting. Our numbers are correlating with exactly what, you know, Pfizer's internal documents that were, that were released by the federal judge. Our numbers, our ages got a little bit skewed because we actually, unfortunately, are seeing some teenagers. We have some young teenage um, women 
or young women in our in our program got the vaccine and and having a sort of very bad reaction to the to the vaccine. So that's what sort of drew, uh, sort of skews our numbers and, and so, brings it down. So- and, and our that that's a really interesting presentation because what you're saying is very similar you know we know it's pro-inflammatory we know it tends to bind to your blood vessels so you had some of the blood disorders but you are seeing some differences and the and the question is does that have to do with some of the mutations that does that have to do with the presence of the s2 we don't know yet but that's an interesting finding do you believe you know i'm, I'm i have in front of me and it's a very detailed um paper from Stephanie Senna from MIT, uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and neurodegenerative disease, she seems to be concerned that the lipid nanoparticles that deliver the spike, the, the RNA, the messenger RNA that, that could, you know, could be coded to create the spike, seems to be very adept at crossing the blood-brain barrier. And I'm just wondering if that could possibly be responsible for getting more spike into the neurological system with the vaccine than possibly even the straight pathogen. Yeah, so that's great. You know, that, that's a great um, point and, and, and some uh, hypothesis. The PEG or the, uh, or the that, that lipid layer around the vaccine um, or the mRNA is known to be an inflammatory agent. So that's that's documented. I think there's a lot of literature on that that suggests it. So there is a hypothesis that that might be inducing the um, that might be causing some of the the inflammation. But earlier in the discussion, I mentioned about those three different types of monocytes. Well, the interesting thing is they can cross the blood-brain barrier. So what we think is that these immune cells, these monocytes, with the S1 proteins in it, both groups, long COVID and the vaccine patients, those monocytes are crossing the blood-brain barrier and they're causing neuroinflammation. And why do we hypothesize that? Well, in HIV, the same mechanism was actually discovered as causing HIV-induced Alzheimer's, HIV, neuroinflammation, the same immune cells that we found in COVID that have the S1, 20, 30 years ago when they were doing research in HIV, they found HIV particles in those same immune cells crossing the blood-brain barrier and being implicated in all of the neurological symptoms. And what they're doing is when they cross the blood-brain barrier, they have a strong affinity to blood vessels. And they stick to blood vessels like Velcro. And there's something called fractal kind. And these, these immune cells have um, uh, the receptors called fractal kind. And fractal kind is a, is, a, is a protein that's found on endothelial cells. And it's also a soluble version of it. So it, it flows in the, in the plasma. But basically, what it, what it, if you imagine sort of a beach ball rolling down a hill, and then it's got Velcro covered on it. And then, mm. it, 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 you know, the, the, the road has Velcro. Now it sticks to it. Now, when it sticks, it's got the S1 protein. Now it's causing vascular irritation. What happens when you have vascular irritation? Well, now you start causing a cascade of a coagulation cascade. Now you activate platelets. And your platelets now release markers. Those markers then recruit more immune cells. Now you have inflammation. Now, what happens when you have inflammation? 
Now you get, now you start turning on your, all your coagulation cascades and all your clotting factors. And now you start hearing about the clots and you start hearing about microclots and whatnot. And interestingly, this is in both groups, both long COVID and also the vaccine patients. Now, let's go back to the inflammatory markers and what we found. So long COVID, we found there are three markers that we measure and there are 14 different markers that we look at. And why 14? Because, you know, you can look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of markers and then you're going to just be overloaded with data. Yeah. And our goal is to try to get people better today. We're not... We're researching to get people better today, not 10, 15, 20 years Exactly. Now. So, so, so we're we talking do- about now for people that want to get blood panels and it, it's not going away, whether it's from the virus, whether it's from the vaccine. So, so you're going to describe some of those, what you believe are the most important tests to run um, and, and markers to look at. Yeah, so we, we have our own panel that, that we've developed at InfelDX where we looked at 14 main markers or 14 markers that were playing a major role in, in acute active COVID. And because long COVID is a sort of a continuation or in the disease spectrum, um, we, we hypothesized that these same markers would play a role also in, in long COVID. And very interestingly, we found there were, I would say four, oh, sorry, three markers that are really driving a lot of the pathology. And, Three or two of them are actually released by platelets. One of them is actually released by immune cells and endothelial cells. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So remember I said that those immune cells, they cause, they stick to your blood vessels like Velcro, causing a vascular irritation. What happens is then your blood vessels get inflamed. They release a marker called vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF, your the garbage trucks of those immune cells that was causing the irritation, they also release VEGF. So we, are, we actually see elevations in VEGF in our long COVID patients. VEGF is known in the literature to cause neuropathy, to cause cognitive issues. And there is our explanation for some of the neurological findings that we find in the patients. Also, you see a lot of this autonomic dysfunction. So autonomic nervous system controls uh, your breathing. It controls your heart rate. It controls your your digestion. So now there's a dysfunction in the autonomics, which are, we we think might be driven by VEGF. Now, when you have the vascular or the blood vessel irritation, you then cause activation of something called platelets. And we call them cells in your your bloodstream. There's sort of three major ones simplified for the listeners. It's platelets, red blood cells, and white blood cells. And what platelets do, they play a role in, um, in coagulation. If you have an injury, they're the first ones to get activated and they've almost formed a scaffold for a clot. And platelets get activated from vascular ir- irritation and vascular inflammation. And there's two markers that we measured um, that indicate platelet activation. One's called SCD40L or SCD40 ligand. And then another one's called RANTES, or also known as CCL5. And they're just two markers that the platelets are releasing. So we actually see elevations of that in the long COVID patients. Now, going to the vaccination group, we actually see some differences in the immunology with um, long COVID, even though the symptoms-wise, they're identical. And the underlying pathology is 
the same with the S1 in the immune cells driving this. The immune system is reacting a little bit different. And we just got some data with very strong statistical significance um, looking at some of these immune markers. And what we saw in vaccine patients was that VEGF, which was driving long COVID, doesn't play a role in post-vaccine patients. Hmm. But what we're seeing in post-vaccine patients is the platelet activation, the SCD40L and the RANTES, are statistically significantly elevated in post-vaccine patients, along with statistically significant elevations in IL-8 and IL-6. Wait, and I, whoa, whoa, whoa. We a, Wait, IL-8 and yeah. I, even I know that's trouble. Wait, aren't those the bad boy cytokines? Yep, they're pro-inflammatory cytokines, and we're seeing statistically significant elevations in post-vaccination patients, IL-6, IL-8, RANTES, SCD40L. I, I mean, correct me well, if I'm wrong, enough- but, but the typical dude going into the hospital, trouble breathing, his sats are dropping to 90, into the 80s, you know, the, the terrible image we have that, it, that it keeps repeating itself throughout the country— those guys, right at that moment, won't they have pretty high IL-6, IL-8 levels? Absolutely. I mean, IL-6 has sort of been, you know, I, I think early on there was a lot of research um, in, in IL-6. We use a drug called tofazulamab, which is an anti-rheumatoid um, arthritis medication. That is an, anti, is an IL-6 receptor, IL-6 inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So that's why we've used it in ICU and in critically ill patients. Absolutely. Because you see elevations in IL-6 and is a pro-inflammatory cytokine can play a role in, we suspect is playing a a role in in the joints, um, the myalgias that some of these patients are experiencing. IL-8 has been implicated in in the cognitive issues in ME-CFS and fibromyalgia. Um, It could be driving also the myalgias. Yeah. so, So we're seeing statistically significant elevations. And in, in the post-vax patients, we have a control group that we looked at that is, a, I think it's about equal numbers of control versus the uh, patients with the post-vax patients. The control group where these are patients that had got vaccinated, they were asymptomatic. We measured their blood work, you know, weeks and months after their last inoculation. No S1 proteins no inflammatory markers except a slight elevation in TNF-alpha, which is understandable because these are active. There's a sign of macrophage or monocyte activation. So, again, there's a group of patients that are having these issues. We did con- compare it to, to normal controls. Majority of people are not having an issue. Majority of people are not having the S1 protein or inflammatory response. But we believe there is a significant amount of people, small, but significant enough that we need to understand what is going on. Sure. And, and our approach has been to, okay, let's test, let's find these markers, let's find the S1 protein, and then let's figure out ways of treating and getting these people better. So what are some of those ways that you could share with us that, that you've approached to this, some of your therapeutics um, that you feel have worked for your patients? So what we've done is we've taken, we looked at mechanisms. And I think what, the one thing I always tell patients and I, when I speak to the physicians, because our program is more of a collaborative model, um, with working with specialists and, and, and PCPs around the country and now, now even the world, 
is what we tell them is like, we have to be open-minded and we have to, we are going to repurpose medications, coming up with some magic drug or even trying to do a randomized controlled trial, which by the way, we are, we are going to be setting that up in the next couple of weeks. It's very difficult doing that um, when you have millions of people and I'm including the long COVID patients that are suffering. You can't yeah. just say, I, I just personally just feel like, can we test and treat and study at the same time? And that's the sort of juggling act we're trying to play rather than saying, we're just going to study, let these millions of people suffer. And maybe 10 years from now, we'll have an answer by then, <laughs> you know, hope, uh, hope you get better on your own. So what we've done is the, the, before starting any conversation about medications, we have to, we are going to consider off labeling and repurposing medications, which is not, even though some, you know, during COVID, it just seems like a, uh, it's like a very taboo just to even bring it up, but we do this every single day in clinical medicine. Um, I do, I, you know, for example, being an anesthesiologist, I do, when I do a spinal, I use a, a cleansing solution called chlorhexidine. Chlorhexidine, if you look at the packaging, the FDA says not for um, use with, with contact with the meninges, but about <laughs> 90 to 95% of anesthesiologists, neurologists in the United States are using chlorhexidine. So again, if, I think doctors, uh, you know, most of us use repurposed medications. We off-label it. So what we've done is we, we started looking at pathways and mechanisms to, um, to target to treat these patients. The number one drug that has worked or helps alleviate a lot of the symptoms is a $5 drug called statins. So You're saying like a torvastatin? You know, a torvastatin, pravastatin, simvastatin, anything with a statin huh. um, works. And here's the mechanism. So we, we, the, where the S1 is in those immune cells, it sticks to blood vessels. I said using something called fractalkine. Well, statins are known in the literature to inhibit fractalkine and to decrease VEGF. Remember I said in long COVID patients, sure. VEGF is driving a lot of the neuropathy and a lot of the neurological issues and the cardiac issues. Well, that's where statins are coming into play here. A, a very low dose, pravastatin, simvastatin. So what it's doing is you're preventing that immune cell from sticking to the blood vessel. And it was so dramatic once we understood probably the spring of this year, when we saw that mechanism and we discovered the, fraud, the, uh, the immune cell, we added statins to some of these patients. And I cannot begin to tell you how dramatic um, of a response that was for, for many patients. It, it was one of, it's that thing that sort of got them over the hump. And $5. $10. It, uh, is phenofibrate part of that family or is that a little bit different? It's a little bit different. It, it's used to also treat um, patients with, it, 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 treat, it treats uh, triglycerides and the mechanism is a little bit different, but phenofibrate is a class of drugs called a fibrate. What phenofibrate in the literature, it can lower vascular inflammation it doesn't necessarily target fractal kind like statins do. It, it, there's some documentation that it can help with VEGF. Um, so what we've done is patients that don't respond to statins. And I would say about 30% of the patients in our cohort um, don't tolerate statins. And a lot of times, one of the more common side effects with statins are 
headaches and myalgias where they have these muscle cramps. And these patients, I just can't take even a low dose of statins. We'll put them on a phenofibrate. And interestingly enough, they're, they're actually responding, which then does support our um, hypothesis that this is a vascular inflammation driving both uh, pathologies here. So that's one class of drugs we use. Um, we've, we've probably in the past year, we really started to look into this drug called Moravrac. Uh, Moravrac, also known as Selzentri, is a medication developed by Pfizer. It's FDA approved, uh, was developed in, in, or approved in 2007, also approved by the MHRA in the UK and the EMA in, the, in Europe. And obviously, red flags go up when you start talking about an HIV medication. But yeah. the, obviously, we're not, we're not treating HIV here. But where the drug is working is there is, so the drug was initially designed to target a receptor on the immune cell called CCR5. And what that means is when the HIV virus or binds or infects a T cell, that's how the the mechanism, T cell is a type of immune cell that the HIV uh, virus binds to. It uses a glycoprotein called glycoprotein 120, which binds to CD4, which is another receptor. But one of the things that in the last 20, 30 years researchers found was there's a co-receptor on the T cell called CCR5, where the HIV also binds to it. And a lot of research went into it and still continues to develop molecules and, and medications that if you inhibit CCR5, that receptor on the immune cell, you prevent HIV from, from binding to the immune cell. So people take, you know, these medications for the rest of their life. CCR, so this drug Moravrac, which is the only FDA, EMA, MHRA um, CCR5 antagonist that's approved, was approved in 2007 for use in, in adults, pediatrics, and neonates. And very interestingly, going back to long COVID and the vaccine patients, that immune cell with the, or the monocytes with the S1 proteins that we discovered, it expresses CCR5. Hmm. So what we're trying to do with this drug is that our hypothesis and the, the mechanism we're, we're trying to, to study is that it's pulling the immune cells away from sites of inflammation. So it's pulling them away from the vascular tissue. So going back to recap, Statins are preventing it from sticking. It's like putting a piece of paper between Velcro. And then you're using a drug called Moravrac to pull those immune cells away. And what happens is then those monocytes, they lose their functionality. And then they undergo something called apoptosis or programmed cell death. And I say that because how do I know some of these things are taking place? Well, in our, our, in our first paper, we talked about there were statistically significant elevations in these types of immune cells in long-haul patients, meaning that the S1 protein are in these garbage trucks, and there are more garbage trucks on the road, meaning your body, than they're supposed to be because they're not undergoing programmed cell death because there's constant turnover in the body of these cells. They have a very short half-life. But what we're thinking is taking place is the S1 protein and subsequently the inflammation is elevating the uh, monocyte, the, the, the subtypes. 
And what we're seeing in patients that have recovered or have, are getting better is one, the S1 protein is clearing out, their inflammatory markers are decreasing, and their monocyte populations are normalizing. And this is taking place anywhere from, you know, usually anywhere from 6 to 10 to 12 weeks. Everyone's obviously very, very different. Some people respond very quickly to these medications. Some take a little bit sure. longer. But, but what you're Some describing is that this is what the scientific method is. You actually study what is going on, and then you try to understand the mechanisms and then try to look at what is out there on the market that um, – that achieves the mechanisms that you want, and and you know you experiment with, with it clinically. Um, this this is what the practice of medicine used to be. This is what science used to be, and we need more of this. So, folks, you go to covidlonghaulers.com. We're we're pretty much out of time, and this has been very engaging, Doctor Ram. Um, just be, before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. A lot of people ask about the loss of taste and smell. Have you guys done any work on that? Yeah, we, again, we, we, we have. And what we believe, again, is the, the S1 proteins, um, it, because it can cross the blood-brain barrier and cross, you know, even the, uh, the olfactory bulbs and, and uh, even the taste sensation. It's been documented that, that they can cross uh, the blood-brain barrier and also vascular tissue. And your tongue is one of the most highly vascularized tissues in the body. So it mm. obviously makes sense. And what we've seen, again, with patients that we can – bring down inflammation, clear the S1 proteins. They are resolving their, their taste and, and smell uh, the issues that are, that, that are taking place post-COVID too. So um, yeah, we, we're definitely seeing that. And, and one of the things we can now do is we run, through, run these tests through two clear validated um, labs, one in Chicago and one in LA. We were running the cytokine panel or these, looking at these inflammatory markers, but I believe starting next week, the CLIA labs are going to be able to offer the S1, uh, measuring the S1 protein. It's called an immune subset test um, that is going to be able to, anyone can order these tests and they can measure the amount of S1 proteins, especially the long COVID patients and even some of these post-vaccine patients. Um, They can order that and work with their physicians. They don't necessarily have to work with us. Um, We keep everything very optional for patients um, some of them work with us. Some of them want to just work with their doctors or their specialists at, at their different institutions. But we think this is a very powerful tool um, to at least give people some data and some, some information. Because it, it's one of the hard things, especially with the post-vaccine patients, there's very little support out there for them. Um, they're yes. being told they're being gaslighted. They're being told they're crazy in the head. Uh, they're making this thing up. And for them to yeah. have some tests that shows, look, this is what's driving. Or exactly. It's, it's some explanation. I think, I think honestly, it's 50% of them getting better. It's that knowing that people are fighting for them so that they can fight for themselves. You know, they'll continue fighting for themselves. And that's exactly. The way that there is a blood panel to confirm it. We're not just, is the vaccine safe or not? I mean, that's a straw man. You know, obviously, you put a spike protein in you, depending on how many spikes you create for how long, what parts of the body. Um, I mean, we, we don't exactly know 100% about the quality control of, you know, different vials. Did, is everyone getting the same dosage? Who knows? But what you do know is on the back end, you have found S1, S2, and that really would explain why we're seeing so many of the syndromes uh, overlapping with uh, with COVID itself, the pathogen itself. 
Um, all I could say is, um, the S, the S what protein is a real, a real piece of work. And, um, it would make sense that that would be what people would be researching for so many years. Um, it does seem to mess a lot of people up and we need more science. We need more treatment. We need to know how to deal with the spike because one thing's clear between the virus and the shots, there's a lot of spike going on. So we better get good on that. COVIDlonghaulers.com. Is there a form there people could fill out? Yeah, there is. Um, there's, a, there's an intake form. They put their question. They put their doctor's names. Um, and what we do is then they'll get a, they get contacted by the lab. And then if they choose to then uh, work with us and in a, in a collaboration with their doctors, they can, we have uh, 11 physicians on our team. Um, we're constantly putting out papers uh, and research papers and, you know, supporting what we're doing. We are putting out an outcome paper in about uh, by the end of this month. So looking at the long COVID patients um, response, and then we're actually partnering up with a couple of uh, institutions around the country to set up some randomized control trials. I mean, that is the end of the day, that is the gold standard. But, you know, again, our approach is we can treat, we can test, we can study, we can do it all at the same time. They don't have to be independent of each other. And we want to get people feeling better today. Exactly. Compassion and dignity, what medicine is all about, what it needs to return to. Uh, Dr. Yogendra, thanks so much for joining us today. And please, please keep us updated on your vital work. Will do. Thanks a lot for having me on today, Daniel. Thank you. So, folks, again, that was Dr. Ram Yogendra. Um, anesthesiologist, uh, re really a uh, background in infectious diseases as well. He's working with the Chronic COVID Treatment Center, covidlonghaulers.com. I know a lot of you um, have issues, uh, whether it's from the shot, whether it's from the virus, whether it's both. Um, there's a lot to digest there. I'm, I'm sorry if it got a little bit too deep. It was even kind of deep for me, um, even though I, I spoke to him already. Uh, but but part of why I do this, and, and again, this, is a, this used to be a political show, um, is because no one is doing this. I mean, this is what science is all about. I want you guys to see the contrast between what it is to do actually do science and what it is to do politics. And the people that were supposed to be doing science are doing politics. That's why someone like myself, who was doing politics my whole life, yeah, I'll get into the science. I'll get into their lane because they're, they're getting into our lane and they're not in their lane. This is the point. Um, you can't wish away this business, and I wasn't going to drag him into the political aspects of this, but I mean, I think it's abundantly clear from the documents we have, the DARPA document, the gain-of-function research was all around the spike. The spike is freaking toxic. That thing's a Frankenstein. It it latches onto your blood vessels. It, la it creates a hell of a lot of inflammation. That that was crazy when I when when you see when he talked about IL six. And don't think I know that much about this. It's just, you know, after spending two years on this, you look at all the studies, um, you see the cytokine storm is all about the IL-6. That's the big bad cytokine there creating the cytokine storm. And they're finding that in people that, that have the shots. So what the heck? I mean, Fauci himself was the guy who said it early on. The first thing you have to make sure when you give a vaccine, you administer it, is that you're not giving them the pathogen. And I think what you see clear here is that it is the pathogen, although they're finding number one mutations, number one S2 parts as well. So there's some some more in there with the shots more than long haulers. And, and again, the neurological stuff crossing the blood-brain barrier. Increasingly, we talk a lot about the blood clots. We talk a lot about the myocarditis, but the neurological issues. Um, this is a – it's a very scary article. Very smart scientist, Stephanie Senna from, from – uh, uh, 
MIT. This is at Epoch Times, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and neurodegenerative diseases. I think we can now understand the the little research I've done on Parkinson's and, and Alzheimer's that the, the belief is, and, and this is why a lot of people are into lifestyle and health and diet is a big deal because it's all about inflammation, neurological inflammation. So when you have a disease going around that's, that's creating tons of inflammation and then you have a shot that delivers inflammation to your brain, I mean, gee, like that's, that's a problem. When we talk about long-term issues that's not going to be reflected in the number of excess deaths we see immediately – which we talked about yesterday, a lot more than they're admitting, you know, likely a few hundred thousand by now, but the long-term inflammatory issues. We have a humanitarian crisis of inflammation going on. We have a humanitarian crisis of an, a spike protein bioweapon attack. And we use the bioweapon to supposedly deal with the bioweapon. So... This is why I'm just dedicating so much time to this. There's so many people that need help. And to me, when I dealt with politics and public policy, the idea was to try to help people deal with big issues. Um, inflation's a big issue, and we'll, we'll talk about that, you know, economic issues. But we have health issues that they refuse to deal with. And I could tell you they're getting blowback for the work they're doing. Pat, Dr. Patterson and his team and, and, and Rom's a part of it, you know, you would think they would be heralded as, 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 as heroes. So it's very vital work there. So if you do want to get a blood panel um, and get advice on what's going on and, and possible treatment, uh, you can go to covidlonghaulers.com. We are way out of time. Send this to anyone you know who needs help. Um, again, there's nothing right or left about this. And this is really my goal this year is to give out universal information as much as I'm more of a conservative. It really shouldn't matter when it comes to this. Um, so again, send this to your friends and relatives. Subscribe on iTunes. And uh, we'll be back again with another terrific show tomorrow. God bless you all. And thank you for listening.